0: From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is the Seth Leibson Show.
1: Yes, it is, and welcome back. Dan Gillertner is a frequent guest of ours. He's a columnist for American Greatness. Uh, writes uh, beautifully and uh, has a has a piece up just uh, just today. Is this World War Three? Um, based on uh, what's taking place between the United, amongst the United States, Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, I wanted to get him on the show. He said some interesting, provocative uh, things, and uh, nothing I disagree with. Dan Galanter, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Seth.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. You betcha. Let's use as a springboard for this conversation. Not only your column. But last night's State of the Union address to help get us there. Okay, can I can I give you a couple words I said in my monologue, and I and and get your feedback on them, and you take them to segue into what you're writing. Okay, sure thing. Putin's late. This is Joe Biden last night. Putin's latest attack on Ukraine was premeditated and totally unprovoked. He rejected repeated repeated efforts at diplomacy. Close quote. To which I said, is that not an admission against interest and an admission of failure? Whose efforts at diplomacy? Obviously ours, Joe Biden's. The efforts failed. And Putin saw enough and heard enough of Joe Biden to think those efforts should fail and that the United States should be dismissed. And why? Because after all the boisterousness about standing with the Ukrainians and isolating Vladimir Putin, it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound of fury signifying nothing. Putin just keeps rolling, the sanctions are failing, the unity of Europe is failing, and the United States can offer little more than collective virtue signaling. It seems to me that's where we're at. It seems to me that's what your column is getting at. Take it from here.
2: Uh, Absolutely. It is like the old uh, mantra, the sort of parody mantra of the British Civil Service, which is that we're going to render them every assistance short of help. And that was the Biden administration's attitude towards the Ukraine. I I don't think that, um, I mean, far from diplomatic efforts having failed, I think this is more or less in a perversive way what Biden actually envisioned happening to the extent that he or his administration can envision anything, just because uh, no one could more clearly invite someone uh, to, uh, to invade. I mean, how many times? can one say, we're not going to stick up for them. We're not going to defend them. No oh, yeah. Will be right. You know, yeah. And before before he finally says, all right, then, you know, and, and what, what disincentive is this? He could not have more clearly drawn the lines of our not stepping up to uh, to defend them. If he had even been ambiguous about it, and people made fun of Trump for the idea of strategic ambiguity, but in fact, that would have been very helpful here. Even if he could have been slightly ambiguous about what America would do in the event of an invasion of Ukraine, probably Ukraine would not have been invaded. But Biden left absolutely no room for doubt that Trump, I mean, that that Putin could uh, march into Ukraine with no repercussions whatsoever. And that's exactly what he's done.
1: I agree entirely with that. And we have seen this movie before. We saw it um, in the same place when it came to Barack Obama threatening Syria uh, with a red line, if they used chemical weapons, Syria took the measure of Barack Obama. Probably watched how he stood up to the mullahs in 2009, i.e., caved into them, and and realized since Syria is kind of you know the tip of the sword of Iran anyway, probably and, and they realized. Barack Obama is going to do nothing about this, which is exactly what Barack Obama did. It's not that they used chemical weapons. That's the big issue. The issue was that we created the conditions that allowed them to think they could get away with it. And they did. And they could. And they were right. We have seen this movie before on that side. We're seeing it with Russia and Ukraine right now. I think you're right. Vladimir Putin doesn't want to stop with Ukraine. And it sends a hell of a serious message or unserious message, depending on how you look at it. To China right now, as you say, they have a two-year window. I think Putin took the measure of how we handled Afghanistan, and it took the measure of what Joe Biden said about not getting involved and not doing anything about it. It took the measure of the leadership of this country, what it was going to do to stand up for its own principles, and said, you know what? We're a strong horse, and they're a weak horse at the end of the day. I think that's what happened. And as you put it in your well-written column, we are, for the moment, the United States out of the game.
2: Indeed, and so China, I think, does pose the real ultimate risk here. Uh, not because they're less dangerous than Russia uh, by themselves, but we're, what we're worried about, or what we should be worried about, is the combination. Now, if I were China or Russia, I would be insane not to have concluded some sort of deal with the other party, um, because this is this is their opportunity, their interest. Their spheres of desired spheres of influence are back-to-back. I mean, they've had territorial uh, contentions in the past, but why would they not at this point have worked out a deal where China will support Russia's expansion in one direction and Russia will support China's expansion in the other, in fact, in a sort of Germany-and-Japan-type uh, scenario? And so I think China's going to watch what happens in the Ukraine, whether or not Putin can subdue it uh, easily, And if the answer is yes, then Taiwan is in in dire straits, because although we are at least slightly ambiguous on that subject, which is better than nothing, uh, I think the Chinese would have no difficulty ultimately making the calculation that we don't really intend to seriously defend them.
1: I think you're totally right. And I think an important thing to keep in mind here, Dan Glenter is our guest, I think an important thing to keep in mind here is that Americans don't look at America the same way foreign leaders look at America. To wit, most Americans are probably fairly comfortable with uh, – comfortable is the wrong word. Most Americans are probably not focused on – let me leave it at that. Are, most Americans are not focused on what the United States is trying to do to reinstantiate concessions and appeasements to Iran right now. But foreign leaders are watching this very carefully. And as Joe Biden is unloading and unleashing his toughest of rhetoric and plumbing his thesaurus to find the deepest, most pejorative things he can say about Vladimir Putin right now, is working hand-in-glove with him to appease Iran. You're telling me Xi Jinping isn't looking at that and saying this is not a serious country? I'm thinking he is.
2: Absolutely. I think that um, to the extent that the current administration – and I think it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it the Biden administration, because we all realize, even on the left, that Biden isn't really complemented. So he's not running things, and he's not even really much of a figurehead. He's just a token, because they cannot admit that he's not president and that this sort of faceless conglomerate behind the scenes is. But I think that the strategy that they're broadly adopting is really one of the... Aggressively pursuing the best interests of America's worst enemy.
1: Right. Right. And what I think is the saddest thing, and I think most Americans, or at least a lot of Americans, do understand, is that there is not a lack of self-confidence or self-doubt in Vladimir Putin any more than there is in Xi Jinping and the ethics and ethos of their country. This is a country loaded to the gills with self-doubt and self-criticism. This is this is this is a real problem. It's a real problem in the international stage. It's a real problem domestically. It's 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 how Jean-Francois Ravel said democracies perish when they stop believing in the righteousness of their own
2: cause. It was uh, one of the most ridiculous recent exploits of the media. Among many, was when they attempted to portray Trump as being uh, lavishing praise on Putin. Because he said that Putin was brilliant, what, and and what he was saying was that Putin is completely outwitting Biden, and there's no no one has any doubt that that's true. Um, but the the left in this country and the current administration and the media, sort of hand in hand, would really rather see America utterly destroyed than have themselves be removed from the little little squares of power that they've managed to accrue, and they will succeed in destroying America unless. We're able to uh, redress the balance in the upcoming midterms and the next presidential election, especially.
1: So, thinking about the next set of elections coming down the road, um, whether they're the midterm elections this November or elections for the president two years hence from that, you know, I, I, I think this is where Americans need a real civics lesson about whether we want to be the country that gets pushed around and whether we want allies that get pushed around, because we have that in recent memory, too. We had that between 1975 and 1981, and 10 countries, 10, fell to the the Soviet sphere. It took a long time to dig out of that. And you know what? It didn't last long. It just didn't. But we know what it's like, and it leads to a lot of misery. There's an old adage, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. We're sneezing left and right right now.
2: We certainly are, but America um, is much stronger morally uh, than it would seem from uh, from the people who are currently in charge. Um, and one has to remember that the, uh, the need... For uh, election fraud in the last election was great, precisely because America, by and large, is so true to its uh, to its ideals, so trustworthy, uh, and so fundamentally good. And it took a lot of lying and cheating to overcome uh, let me th- to overcome that in America and to overpower it. But America, Man, let me take
1: this quick commercial break. Can I keep you one more segment, or do you have to run? I'll be here. Great. I'm Seth Lipsen. He's Dan Galanter. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show, brought to you from the studios, from the Guns Etc. studios, live here in Phoenix. Our guest is Dan Galenter. He has a piece, Is This World War III, over at American Greatness, really important and trenchant. Dan, um, talk to me about what you think this country is prepared for or what this president of ours is— prepared for because he said last night i'm quoting him in his speech he said we are ready we are united and that's what we did we stayed united we prepared extensively and carefully we spent months building coalitions of other freedom-loving nations from america to the asian to the african continents to confront putin okay if all that's true if big if but let's concede it for a moment it was useless and it will prove useless Even when the sanctions begin to take hold in effect, if they take hold in effect by Joe Biden's own timeline, which is weeks. I mean, you know, Putin is a hot knife through the soft butter right now of Ukraine. And I just don't know what Joe Biden is preparing for with this kind of rhetoric. And it's odd because it's pretty clear to me that Putin isn't going to be satisfied with just Ukraine. You take it from here.
2: it's more than odd. It's almost parallel reality when you think of it. The only thing worse than an abject failure is bragging about it is the <laughs> success. And, yeah. and, you know, that's exactly what Biden's team seems to be doing. Is like, oh, we did such a good job coalition building. But then you have to remember To what point? They <laughs>
1: <Why? died. laughs> For what end?
2: What was the telos? They, they regard the ideas, I suppose, of uh, you know national cooperation and so forth, and all coming together, as more important than the actual end results. But of course, anyone who is capable of assessing the end results of an action wouldn't be a leftist in the first place. Right. Now, I think that um, the administration is being outplayed by Biden at every—I mean, by um, by Putin at every turn—and uh, they really, I don't think, are capable of thinking strategically about what the next move is likely to be because they really aren't able to put themselves into the mind of anyone who's not themselves and who doesn't think like a member of a, of a Western democracy, even a deeply corrupt member like the people who are currently running the administration. Um, but this was uh, very evident in the mocking tone that Obama took uh, during his administration and the now famous debate with uh, debate with Romney and right. so forth. The idea that uh war is a, is a relic of the 20th century and the idea of wars for territorial expansion are a thing of the past it's like they're on the wrong side of history so we just have to move on and the idea that there could be nations out there that really are bent on territorial aggrandizement has barely occurred to them and so they are utterly unable to, to, to deal with it and to think of what the implications might be now with respect to ukraine I think that currently we have the feeling in America that, and we're very enthusiastic about Ukraine as well, we should be at the moment. And right. we think, well, you know, they're, they, if they're not winning per se, at least they're not losing. Maybe they're like, you know, Britain during the Battle of Britain, they're standing there all by themselves and doing a fine job, which is true as far as it goes. But um, Putin, has not, Putin has not deployed his full power against Ukraine. He could really obliterate Kiev right away if he wanted to, And so you should ask yourself why he hasn't done that yet. And uh, if I were the rest of the world, if I were America, I would be worried that what may happen here is that they, uh, we know that there's sort of peace talks and negotiations of a sort. I would be worried not that Ukraine surrenders in what we regard as a conventional surrender, but that they will agree, as they've hinted at, that they will uh, agree to be non aligned, as the phrase goes, that they'll, uh, they'll, uh, say, we don't want to join NATO anymore, we're just going to you know, do our own thing, and uh, crucially that they'll allow Putin to move Russian soldiers through Ukraine to some other country that he would like to attack. And I think if uh, if that happens and then Putin decides to move on to a next objective, and if I were Putin, I would want to demonstrate that NATO is not really defensible, so I would attack one of the Baltics. Uh, I think that that would be the best way he can pull a win out of this, it's not by subjugating Ukraine, but by... Uh, getting Ukraine to agree to be non-belligerent. And I don't say that this is going to happen, but that it's something that we should be prepared for, because Putin is extremely smart. When Trump says Putin's extremely smart, he's absolutely right. He's extremely smart, he's extremely calculating, extremely vicious. And I don't think that he would have embarked on this course without planning out more of the endgame. And if that happens, then Russia is suddenly in a much stronger position, and so is China. And then I think World War III is uh, within within
1: a close distance. I don't disagree. What I worry about, and probably we're in fierce fierce agreement here, Dan, but what I worry about is the rhetoric Joe Biden is using, whether it was the rhetoric from before last night's speech or the rhetoric of last night's speech, because if Putin is wanting to tempt or test, you know, the rhetoric of Joe Biden, you're absolutely right. I mean, those Baltic states... Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, where my family's from. If, those, if any, Let's say Estonia. Let's say he makes a move on Estonia. Um, if you listen to Joe Biden, you know n- nothing like this is going to be tolerable. If you listen to every American in the, this country, its we're, we're not going to fight for Estonia. I think, I think, in other words, that Joe Biden has set up the conditions not only for NATO to fail but for Putin to succeed and for China to succeed. And, and it, it all begins and ends with the rhetoric of Joe Biden, to be honest with you.
2: This is the, uh, the worst part of the, the policies of the, sort of the traditional leftists, and, and really he's been around for longer than you think, because it seems exactly the same thing happened before the, the Second War, and to an extent it was around before the First World War as well. The, um, the fact is that the, the policies of those who are so hell-bent on achieving peace, peace at any price, rather than uh, assuring peace and avoiding war may, as Churchill points out, lead direct to the bullseye of disaster. Uh, simply because we are not playing against people who have the same goals as we do. And that's that's the invariable leftist assumption when they try to deal with global politics. It was Chamberlain's assumption also, was the idea that basically everyone is not just a rational actor, but someone who wants a stable, peaceful world in which everyone respects everyone else's rights. And that's patently not the case.
1: One of the things that I... I want to I wanted to address uh, to you and to the audience when you talked about, you know, you, you were saying if Putin wanted it, it, it's odd that he hasn't done it by now because he could have. My <clears throat> guest I have frequently on this show, Brandon J. Weikert, you may or may not know of his work, but he was telling me that the Russian strategy and theory of war very much looks like what Putin is doing. Uh, Russian or Soviet, they go in kind of haltingly. They go in kind of plottingly. They kind of test. They kind of push. They're willing to take some body bags, maybe even a lot of body bags, a lot more than we in the West are used to taking, and they kind of feel out and see where the enemy's weak spots is or the country they're invading's weak spots are, where their strong spots are. They're willing to sacrifice and go slow, and then they come in and demolish. If that is the pattern, nothing here is surprising me.
2: Yes, and remember that dictatorships play a much longer strategic game than yep. democracies do yep. because the governments have longer. Because Putin doesn't have to worry about being elected, That's and that. neither does Xi in China, whereas our policy is going to change every four years and maybe every two years. And maybe so every two, yeah. they can yeah. afford to wait yeah. until conditions are right. And again, yes, they can afford to take those body bags because they don't really value human life no, particularly. But they do value results, and Putin would be a, Putin is not a fool, clearly. And I don't think he would have embarked on this course without planning it out very well. And so it, it's premature of us to think that Ukraine can handle this, certainly not without more help than we're providing simply by uh, putting Ukrainian flags on our Facebook profile. Or,
1: or the billion dollars Joe Biden bragged about giving them yesterday it Sounded like something from Dr. Evil. All right. Dan galernter always love talking to you, brother. Always love learning from you. God bless you and Godspeed. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show brought to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. I was talking with Dan offline about the kind of country we were and used to be in these times, these kinds of times. And Son of a Gun, there's this once upon a time over in the Wall Street Journal by Bob Green I just can't not share with you. He writes, the voice from more than 60 years ago was remarkably clear and to my ears instantly recognizable. Quote, I'm very happy to welcome you boys and girls to the first assembly of the 1960-61 school year, said Floyd Stolzenberg, principal of Cassingham Elementary School in Bexley, Ohio. A buddy of mine from those days had found the old reel-to-reel tape in a box. As a child, he had been a member of the school's audiovisual club and a volunteer projectionist for the movies in the auditorium, like our friend the Atom in autumn 1960, he had lugged his bulky woolen sack tape machine to that auditorium to record Floyd Stolzenberg's speech. As I listened the other day, I was startled to hear the principal's reedy, friendly voice say something I hadn't anticipated. After noting the student council elections that were coming up, he said quote, "Mr. Khrushchev, who I'm sure you know of, is in New York City at the present time." Close quote." Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, was an ominous and widely distrusted a figure in the U.S. in 1960, as Vladimir Putin is today. Four years earlier, he had issued a threat to Western nations, we will bury you. Solzenberg told all of us children in the auditorium that in New York, Khrushchev, quote, was asked what percentage of the people voted for him in the last election. He said it was 99.86 percent, close quote. This week, I checked some old clippings and Stolzenberg was very close. The OPI reported that Khrushchev, speaking from the balcony of a building on Park Avenue while in Manhattan for a meeting of the United Nations General Assembly, had boasted that, quote, there is no more democratic system than ours. How many votes had he received in the most recent election? Ninety nine point nine percent. So Floyd Stolzenberg, who lived with his family on Elm Avenue across from the school's baseball field and was the public address announcer for Friday night football games, explained to us why he was discussing the Soviet leader. His tone was gentle. He said, in other words, less than one percent of the people dared to express any dissatisfaction with Mr. Khrushchev. That is a slave nation. His message was emphatic, quote, within the next month, your parents will be privileged to vote in a national, a state and a local election, deciding how they will be governed. I believe that no nation in which the people serve the government can be considered a great nation. Only a nation in which the government serves the people can be a great nation. He said that. In this community in the American Midwest and further went on to add, quote, your parents will have an opportunity to vote as their conscience and their intellect dictates to them. Close quote. He asked us to think about what that meant. He said we should always remember that, quote, yours indeed is a great land. Close quote. And on that tape from long ago, the sounds of the assembly went on. This was the common parlance and the common talk. Just a little more than a generation and a half ago. Think about that. Think about where we are and where we've come. We were talking to, uh, I think, yes, Dan Galerner a few moments ago about where things fell apart. Also, Lewis Hallman was making the same point. Interestingly, both of them of the same generation, about the same age as I know them. Think about what, was not true in 1960 about America and the ethos about America and our government and what's true now. Think about that line. I believe that no nation in which the people serve the government can be considered a great nation. Only a nation in which the government serves the people can there be a great nation. Other uh, Anything else is slavery. Do you believe that we are a people the government serves or do you believe that we have a government that is designed for the people to serve it? right now when you think about everything asked of you when you think of the regulations when you think of the taxes when you think of the economic inputs and outputs when you think of what you have to comply with every april and often every quarter do we have a government that serves us or are we here to serve this government wasn't this what it was all about really isn't it wasn't it if you listen to the State of the Union speech last night, you'd think it was a very normal thing and a very historical thing that we are a people who are supposed to be serving this government. It is not. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leibniz Show, brought to you in part by the good folks at Balance of Nature Whole food nutrition, pure, potent plant power, 100% natural. They're fruits and veggies. I take them every day. Just the fruit blend, you get tomatoes, papayas, grapes, wild blueberries, strawberries, aloe vera, grapefruit, sweet cherries, lemons, and raspberries, pineapples, and mangoes. That's just on the fruit side. I take it every single day. It has no additives, not any, not, not no GMOs, no extracts, no synthetics. Even the vegetarian capsules are pure vegetable. If you don't like swallowing the capsules, they're easily made to open up. Some people even chew them, but you can open up and sprinkle it into food or drink. Check out Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies, balanceofnature.com. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE for the best deal possible. Balanceofnature.com, discount code balance. I take it every day. Those who have uh, followed my advice to take it as well, they thank me for it. They love it. Last word I want to say about last night's speech is from the other side of the aisle, in a a sense. There was some left-wing criticism of it. Um, There was some progressive caucus criticism of it. Nobody got this better and understands it better than one Emily uh, Jashinsky over at uh, The Federalist, thefederalist.com, uh, she put it this way. Joy Reid, the MSNBC, lamented the absence of January 6th from Biden's address, arguing it was characteristically devoid of red meat. That's what a lot of lefties were saying. the 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 speech last night was devoid of red meat. Jashinsky writes, Reid was right to find that the balance was remarkable. Rather than signaling a shift away from the Democrats' scorched-earth culture war, Biden's speech signaled a shift away from the party's strategy of obsession over identity politics. This comes with a hugely important caveat. Democrats cannot and will not meaningfully make any such pivot beyond that kind of rhetoric. Until they're willing to drop truly radical policies like the Equality Act, it's all smoke and mirrors meant to distract voters from what they're actually doing in and to the culture. Democrats cannot simply pretend the summer of 2020 and the lockdowns never happened, no matter how much the media might help them try. Because the party has now spent years committing to inflated definitions of bigotry that would condemn any moderation from their positions. Sure. Voters have short memories, and the media is complicit. But these definitions are now baked into our institutions. They are ingrained in the minds of a generation. They're clung to by journalists and activists that Democrats need to please. Why else pick Kamala Harris as your running mate? Samuel Goldman of George Washington University disrupted the annual flood of breathless State of the Union tweets with a great reminder last night. He tweeted, guys, this speech is not for you. It's for Democratic Party leaners, people who lean to the Democratic Party, who disapprove of the administration. And these are the lines that worked for them in focus groups. Don't overthink it, close quote. That's exactly right. And it's also why Biden's meat and potatoes tone felt different. From recalls and losses like Terry McAuliffe's to Biden's dismal ratings to COVID missteps and brutal new polls, establishment Democrats and even their allies in the corporate press are worried enough about their power to start making small sacrifices in the culture war, even if they're superficial. One way to put it would be do it, don't say it. And they have to be superficial because establishment Democrats have spent years emboldening the cultural left so much that small departures from dogma are now treated as bigotry by a vocal minority of their base. While those voices may be a minority of the base, many of them are very powerful and they can weaponize all of the Democrats prior cultural leftism against them to level accusations of racism and sexism and all the other isms over rhetoric alone. Look at this tweet from Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, sent out to her 900,000 followers after the speech. Quote, With all due respect, Mr. President, you didn't mention saving black lives once in your speech. All our country has done is given more funding to police. The result, 2021 set a record for fatal police shootings. Defund the police. Invest in our communities. Close quote. See, she's still talking about defunding the police. Biden's heavy focus on meat and potatoes signaled a cynical but long overdue attempt by the Democratic establishment to convince voters they're not frenzied culture warriors. Unfortunately for Biden and his party, they are indeed frenzied culture warriors, and they're going to have a difficult time proving otherwise without alienating the radicals they've tried so hard to appease. It's at least good news that voters are rejecting cultural leftism so clearly even Beltway liberals are Noticing, But don't for a moment think it's going to last. It is merely to get through this November. Why else? Why else? What science and what studies changed the mask mandate even in the House of Representatives last night? The House of Representatives had a rule in Washington, D.C. until last night that members in the House of Representatives had to wear masks. Until last night, that rule changed. Why do you think that was? It's an interesting thing when you take, if you take the left seriously or if you take Joe Biden seriously. It's an interesting thing to consider, and I'm not smart enough to put this together, but I'll lay it out there because I think there's something to it. Maybe one of you can put it together for me. It's an interesting thing where you go from claiming that the morally right thing to do is wear a mask. Indeed, the patriotic thing to do is to wear a mask. Joe Biden sent that umpteen times. It's your patriotic duty to wear a mask. To celebrating the taking off and the removal of those mask mandates. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's an interesting thing. You know why it's interesting? And this will be my first thought on it. Is that, yeah, there's a large part of the country that agrees with it, but there's still a larger part of the country that believes in common sense. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Thank you to Mr. Chris Llewellyn for producing the show today. Bill will be back tomorrow. Many thanks again Chris. I close with this thought. I had a uh, visitor to the studio uh, before the show. We were talking, and he said, can you give me five books? Give me five books that... I should read, that every conservative should read to understand conservatism better or more deeply or more intellectually. And, uh, you know, I had to think because we've done this a lot and, you know, sometimes the answers change. Sometimes the answers change. One of the books I suggested was um, A New Birth of Freedom, which was by my teacher, Harry Jaffa. I was thinking about it in my conversation with Lewis Hallman. And the questions Lewis Hallman was raising about individual rights, community rights, the decency and normalcy of this country, the greatness of this country, the right, what's right and what's wrong. Uh, these debates have been with us forever. That's what Harry Jaffa's career was dedicated to, is understanding these debates in years past by understanding the best discussion of them in American history, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I don't know if they're studied anymore. But I thought I would close the show with this quote from Abraham Lincoln, perhaps as an enticement in one of those debates, the debate at uh, Alton, Illinois. It is the eternal struggle between two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world that animates these debates. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle with. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other, the divine right of kings. It's the same principle. In whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says you work and toil and earn bread and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes. Whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor. Or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race. It is the same tyrannical principle. Apply it to these times, apply it to these days, and you begin to understand that indeed there is nothing new under the sun. Only our answers to the same problems that we have ever been struggling with. Those answers, those answers are available to us. We can bury them, we can ignore them. That's what the left tries to do. We can make them worse by doing so. That's the opposite of what our efforts are here. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebsen, Classics